0: Today on the Matt Wall Show, the VMAs were last night. It was vulgar and debauched and also boring, and nobody cared about it. I think there's an important lesson in that, which I'll explain today. Also, George Bush gave a speech on 9-11, which has the left celebrating him. Bush went from Hitler incarnate to one of the good ones. What does that tell us? And white liberals keep calling Larry Elder a white supremacist. Plus, a new poll shows that Democrat voters consider Trump supporters to be a bigger threat than the Taliban or China. And finally... Many people in the media have been defending the vaccine mandates on the basis that they, in the media, have the right to be free from COVID. Is that true? Does any such right exist? We'll discuss that and much more today on The Matt Walsh Show. Now we check in again with our very good friends over at uh, Charity Mobile. And I love telling you about Charity Mobile because, listen, a lot of you people out there, you're paying money every month to a mobile service provider, big company that um, either doesn't doesn't care about you or, or, or actually they, they probably actively hate you and are working against you. Why do that when you can switch over to Charity Mobile and it's so easy to switch and you will not regret it? Other mobile service providers are neutral at best when it comes to the causes you care about, but Charity Mobile partners with you to automatically support the pro-life, pro-family charity of your choice with 5% of your monthly plan price. Charity Mobile Makes it easy to switch. You can keep your existing phone number, and you may even be able to keep your existing phone. It's very easy to do, Uh, but if you do get a new phone, they've got 5G phones available as well, and a lot of other perks. New activations and eligible accounts. Get a free cell phone with free activation and free shipping. When you mention offer code Walsh, there's no contracts, there's no termination fees, and no risk with a 30-day guarantee. They've also got live customer service based right here in the USA, uh, creating jobs in America, which is also really important. So switch to Charity Mobile and support a company and causes that you care about. Call them at 1-877-474-3662 or chat with them online at charitymobile.com and mention offer code Walsh. So the VMAs uh, aired on MTV on Sunday night. I know what you're thinking. Wait, the VMAs are still a thing? And I know what else you're thinking. Wait, MTV is still a thing? I was just as surprised as you on both counts. I only know that this event occurred last night because I read through dozens of news articles every morning as part of my job. Uh, And in my scavenging, I stumbled across a few articles listing the winners of the um, 2021 VMAs. If you're curious, and you probably aren't, the winner for video of the year was Montero by Lil Nas X, uh, the one where he, he twerks on Satan. MTV giving its highest award to a video where a gay man dry hump Satan is probably the least surprising development of the year. Justin Bieber won Artist of the Year, his 27th straight win in that category, I assume. The trophy for Best Collaboration went to Doja Cat featuring SZA, S-Z-A. I have no idea who those people are or even how many people they are. But apparently one of them came on stage dressed like uh, some kind of nightmarish sea cucumber, so that was interesting. But the most shocking thing there, there, there she is. That is, uh, that's Doja Cat. Is that Doja Cat or or SZA? I don't know. Looks like maybe uh, maybe one of those worms from the movie Tremors. But the most shocking thing about that outfit is that it covers more than three percent of her body. Many of the other celebrities, I'm assuming Doja Cat is a celebrity, decided to show up in see-through outfits songs, and so on and so on. Um, The performances on stage were, in keeping with that theme, a woman named Chloe writhed around on stage, twerking, uh, slapping her butt in front of a giant blinking sign that said, booty so big. Now, that was downright subtle in comparison to somebody named Normani, who sang her hit song, Wild Side, I'm assuming it's a hit song, while rubbing herself against another woman who was strapped to a bondage board. Meanwhile, Lil Nas X strutted the red carpet, doing some cross dressing, uh, some sort of pantsuit slash dress combination. And there was no shortage of, uh, of politics to punctuate the debauchery. Sydney Lopper, who evidently is still alive, took to the stage to present an award and then rant about abortion rights. And speaking of the elderly community, Madonna was also on the scene. She walked onto the stage wearing a giant coat and then dramatically uh, stripped the coat off to reveal the skimpy leather dominatrix outfit and thong underneath. I'm not going to show you the thong part. I'll, I'll, I'll have some mercy on you, but there's, there's the outfit. Now, this is when you know that it's time to put Nana in a home. You, you can make the argument that even allowing her to wander on stage looking like that is a form of, of elder abuse. She even looks kind of, you see there, in the, in, especially in the picture on the right, she looks kind of dazed and confused. She doesn't know where she is. She has that sort of uncertain facial expression that Joe Biden has made famous. We can only pray that Biden doesn't ever appear in front of cameras dressed in a similar way. But at this point, anything is possible. And now I've just pictured Biden in that outfit in my head and I want to cry. And yet in a certain way, um, I'm glad that Madonna showed up and stripped off her clothes. Because there's something sort of profound and emblematic about it. Here she is, an old woman, having long since run out of things to say and ways to shock and offend, reduced to simply stripping on camera in her late 90s, begging for our attention. It's not offensive so much as sad and pitiful, dull. You don't want to yell at her about it. You want to give her a coat and a bowl of soup and pat her on the head and say, it's okay, you don't have to do this anymore. Grandma, sit down. You'll be all right. Let's, put, let's, let's just watch some TV. Murder, she wrote, is on, I think. Now, Madonna, in that way, is a good representative of the whole event and of the broader pop culture that she helped to create. There was, last night, plenty of debauchery and perversion and nudity and all kinds of desperate sexual attention-seeking, and none of it managed to make any waves at all. The VMA's ratings have been collapsing for years. Nobody cares. You only know about any of this because I'm telling you, and I only, I only know about it because I read a couple of articles just so that I can make the point that I'm making right now. Madonna was relevant back during a time when pop artists could simply wear revealing outfits and sing about sex, and um, that was enough to create controversy and uh, drive publicity. You know, She could roll around on stage in a wedding outfit, singing about losing her virginity, that was a big moment. That was revolutionary. Wow. But now pop stars can hump each other in bondage gear while singing graphically about their genitals, and it goes unnoticed. They have to go to greater and greater extremes to generate the sort of hype that Madonna could once attract with a fraction of the effort. Now Lil Nas X, speaking of him, got some of the attention that he hopelessly yearns for when he made that twerking Satan video, But that controversy died down pretty quickly and everybody moved on. And that's why he has to dream up new degeneracies every week just to stay within the vicinity of the limelight. Last week, he was uh, posing for pictures while wearing a fake pregnancy baby bump. And, And that was supposed to be a thing. But even that's pretty boring and standard these days, especially in a culture where millions of people actually believe that men can literally get pregnant. There was a time when it was considered revolutionary and rebellious to be a vile, vulgar pervert. The the perverts were rebelling against a culture that rightly disapproved of that behavior. They were seeking to tear down moral standards and structures that they claimed were oppressive and restricting, and they succeeded. The perverts won. But the thing about staging a revolution and winning is that now you are the man, you're the system, you're the very institution of power that you once sought to destroy. So you stage the revolution and you win. Now you have to take over and run these things that you were just five seconds ago trying to tear down. So now the vulgar perverts aren't rebelling against anything at all. Madonna is old enough to be the grandmother of most of the rest of the people she shared the stage with. That means that as they were bumping and grinding and showing their asses and shouting, look at me, look at me, They were behaving exactly as a woman their grandmother's age once behaved, and still does. There's nothing revolutionary or shocking about it. It's mainstream. It's acceptable. It's boring. It's empty. It's feeble. It's pathetic. Of course, this kind of stuff has always been empty, feeble, and pathetic. It was empty, feeble, and pathetic back when Madonna was doing it 30 years ago, and everybody thought it was revolutionary. But decades ago, people made the mistake of thinking that artists, quote-unquote, who showed their butts and sang about sex... We're doing something brilliant and and significant simply because it was rebellious. Now that it's no longer rebellious, the shine has worn off and it's easy to look at it and think, wow, these people really just have nothing at all to say. I'm bored, what else is on? This is perhaps the most underrated aspect of living in a morally decayed culture. Because if you didn't know any better and you weren't living in such a culture, and you thought about it, you might think, well, that, that could be fun at least. That's not. It's quite boring. I mean, it's many other things as well, but it's certainly boring. As it turns out, evil has a rather bland flavor. Now, the good news is that amid all of this dull, hollow decadence, virtue becomes exciting and rebellious. I mean, pop stars can spread their legs and take off their clothes and scream about their right to kill babies. And none of that is remotely revolutionary or brave. But if one of them had appeared on stage to speak in defense of the unborn or to promote chastity and modesty or even to defend something like patriotism, that would have been truly shocking and required real courage. It would have been a revolutionary act. None of them have the spine for that or the value system, so it didn't happen. Yet the fact remains that the moral code these people fight against is the moral code of today's true cultural revolutionaries. We are now the guerrilla warriors fighting against powerful institutions who despise us and seek to destroy and oppress us. It's not a good situation to be in. I would not prefer it if I was given the choice. But it does provide an opportunity to connect with people, especially young people, who naturally desire to rebel against systems of power. So we can say to them, join us. That's our side. The Rebels. We're the Rebels. Or you can join the naked grandma on stage to defend the boring status quo. Now let's get to our five headlines. If you're a pro-lifer and uh, you are firm in that position and you know that you believe um, in protecting babies from being murdered in the womb, uh, but you haven't thought deeply about some of these issues and you haven't equipped yourself with all the arguments necessary, you know, if that's the category that you fall into, then uh, it may have been, maybe it's been tough over the last couple of weeks as abortion has been back in the news because of the Texas law banning abortion. And uh, maybe you've found yourself in conversations with pro-abortion people. Uh, maybe they've thrown some arguments out, out at you. that you, you know are wrong, but you, you don't exactly have the language to navigate through it and sift through all of the nonsense. And if that's the case, that's why you need to get the new book, What to Say When, the complete new guide to discussing abortion. That's from our friends over at 40 Days for Life. Just became an Amazon bestseller and it's number one in its category upon its release two weeks ago. Very easy book to use and reference. It tells you what to say and what not to say when abortion comes up. It has proven arguments that have worked with everybody. Uh, people on the fence, abortion supporters, even Planned Parenthood workers have been have found uh, these these arguments compelling, and 221 of them have left those ways behind because of the work of 40 Days for Life. So you don't want to miss this. Go to Amazon or get it directly from 40 Days for Life at 40DaysForLife.com. Okay, so um, I got to say, just quick uh, note here: I am speaking of decadence and, and uh, decaying cultures. I am very glad to be back from all the, uh, the traveling we've done over the last couple of weeks. And we've been in I don't know six or seven different cities. Um, and I, I could not be happier to be home because the cities that we've we've been to it's not like I've you know I, I it's not like it's my first time going to some of these these places. But most recently we were in New York, and my God, it is just a garbage dump. Who could choose to live in these places? Gross just gross gray dull everything smells everywhere you go this is, this is this is the case in uh, in New York this is definitely the case in Los Angeles San Francisco uh, everywhere you go it's it smells like urine and weed everywhere and just crackheads walking around the street everywhere you go and then and then in the to top it off everything is is you know three times as expensive so that's, that's the reward you get for living amid all of this misery and despair and garbage and crime. Every time I go, and I've always felt this way about you know these bigger cities, especially New York. Hadn't been there in a while. This was my first time back in, in a few years. It's way worse than I remember. And I've always thought this, and especially now, I think, how could anyone prefer this? If you think, oh, I love living in New York, it's it's got to be because you've never been anywhere else. There's no way that a, that a human being, that a psychologically stable person, and maybe that's the qualifier here that, that, that matters, but there's no way that a psychologically healthy person could actually prefer that over living in a place where you have grass and trees and space and privacy and quiet and you and the smell of like nature and you know fresh air, rather than urine and fecal matter. There's no way someone could look at that and say, "No, I, I prefer. I prefer the dystopian hellscape. That's 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 what I would prefer to be. Horrible. You got to get out of these cities if you live there. You you really don't know if you're still there. I have to assume you you literally don't know what you're missing. All right." Um, Let's go here. Number one, President Bush speaking at the uh, the Flight 93 Memorial in Pennsylvania. Of course, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 was on uh, Saturday, and he was giving a speech. He made a comparison between the 9-11 terrorists and violent extremists at home. Comments that almost everyone has assumed were referring to uh, January 6th and Trump supporters, but here he is. Let's listen. And we have seen growing evidence that the dangers to our country can come not only across borders but from violence that gathers within. There is little cultural overlap between violent extremists abroad and violent extremists at home. But in their disdainful pluralism, in their disregard for human life, in their determination to defile national symbols they are children of the same foul spirit and it is our continuing duty to confront them. Now, you know, I, I saw the conversation on social media and some of the headlines that Bush had used his speech to attack, you know, to mention January 6th, the attack Trump supporters. Uh, and then I listened to it and I, I didn't actually I was expecting him based on the commentary. I was expecting that he would directly mention that. And he didn't. That's all. That's all he said. Uh, the assumption is that he meant that as a slam on the right, basically, which maybe he did. I, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 possible he wasn't referring to to them, but that's the assumption. That's uh, certainly the assumption that the left and the media has uh, jumped to here, and so they're they're hailing this speech as courageous and so important and and everything. And this is this is part and parcel of what we've seen when it comes to uh, to George Bush over the last uh, over the last. Four or five years, specifically. Once, because there wasn't a whole lot of this during Obama's tenure. Um, But once Donald Trump was in there, suddenly there was this newfound respect that uh, the media had for for George Bush. And it can be easy to forget. And in fact, depending on how old you are, if you're younger, you may not remember some of this. Uh, You may not remember very vividly, but I do. The the way that the media talked about Donald Trump for four years, they said the same things about about George Bush. It was maybe it was a little bit more intense against Trump, but really not that much more. Because when you're comparing the president to Hitler and saying he's a genocidal dictator, it's, it's hard to have stronger or more strident criticism than that. And they were saying that about George Bush. For eight years they said that. And now uh, and now they and now they respect him and they say, well, gee, that Bush, he wasn't, he, wasn't so, he wasn't so bad, was he? And so it may seem impossible to you now. You may not be able to even fathom this, but there will come a time, and it may not be that far off, when they're gonna be doing the same thing with with Donald Trump. I know it seems there's no way, given everything they've done to Trump and said about him over the last uh, half a decade, but there will come a time when they're going to say, in fact, we're already starting to hear that a little bit. We, we played the clip. I think it was a couple weeks ago. Someone on some cable news channel said, well, when you compare Trump to uh, DeSantis, I mean, DeSantis, Tr- Trump is, is not so bad compared to DeSantis. So whoever the most recent guy, wh- wh- whatever, whatever Republican is in office or whichever Republican, uh, they consider to be the biggest threat. Then all other Republicans in comparison to that one are, you know, we're, were, were, were innocent in comparison. So that will happen. And, and all that means is that, you know, we say that the left respects Bush now or whatever. It's, it's not respect. It's not love. It's not admiration. Uh, it's, of course, it's not sincere. It's just that Bush is now useful to them. It's a useful comparison for them to draw. And when he criticizes Trump or Trump supporters, whether explicitly or not, that's even more useful. So they will, quote, respect you when they feel that they can use you. And that's what they're doing with Bush now. And meanwhile, I wish that, uh, honestly, I don't don't know why Bush is being invited to speak at any 9-11 memorial. Uh, I I don't want to hear from George Bush. He, one of the most disastrous presidencies in American history was George Bush's presidency. I mean, the, the, the irony here is that many of the criticisms, not the overblown, dramatic, he's Hitler and all that, not that, but there are plenty of criticisms levied against George Bush during his tenure by the, the media that they were they were right about. And now they're the ones haven't been proven, proven right on, the, on that. Not that you can give him credit for it because he's a Republican, so they're going to criticize him. And it's a broken clock thing. It just so happens that they're going to be correct sometimes, um, especially because there are plenty of bad Republicans out there. But now they're, they're the ones going back on that and say, oh, George Bush, that, that George Bush, he's a lovable guy. Look, he does, he does his watercolor paintings. Look at this cute old man, George Bush. All right. The uh, the Surgeon General on CNN is now saying that actually businesses are relieved that they're being forced to mandate vaccines. So uh, there's nothing to complain about here. Businesses are are happy that they're being saddled with this mandate, according to the Surgeon General.
1: The requirements uh, that we just heard about are, are one part of that, but they're only one part of that. It includes also measures to increase our testing capacity to shore up our hospitals and healthcare systems which are struggling with Delta. But what the president and what all of us have said as public health leaders from the earliest part of this pandemic is that we have to use every lever of government Uh, and we all in the private sector have to do everything we can to tackle this virus. The requirements the president announced are an example of that. Uh, Earlier in the summer, uh, the president had announced requirements for federal workers Mm -hmm. uh, to attest to vaccination, and this is another step in that direction. Not only will federal workers now be required uh, to vaccinate with an exemption for medical or religious purposes, but also, you know, healthcare systems that do business with Medicare and Medicaid. Seventeen million healthcare workers will be required. Eighty million uh, business uh, workers who have, uh, you know, hundred employees or more will also now be required. Uh, you know, under the OSHA mm-hmm. rule, uh, which is in process, to either get vaccinated or to get tested regularly. So, the, the key thing to understand, Dana, is number one, the data tells us that these requirements work. To increase vaccinations. Number two, a lot of businesses <clears throat> are actually relieved that these are going into place, and we've heard a lot of feedback from the business roundtable and others that this will help create safer workplaces. But finally, Dana, keep this in mind: this is what we've got to do to get to the next phase of this pandemic response, so that we can get through this and get back mm-hmm. to normal.
0: It sounds ridiculous, and it is. Except that you could you could qualify it this way. And he, he, there's there's one one qualification he forgot to mention. Forgot on purpose, I'm sure. Uh, what he just said is probably true of big, like, big businesses, mega corporations. They probably are relieved because it takes the problem out of their hands, and now they can force the uh, the vaccine on their employees without having to worry about getting sued or anything. It just it just takes it out of their hands, and now uh, it allows allows the government to solve that problem. And they're big, so they can deal with the turnover. If they lose a bunch of employees, they can deal with that. Uh, they have the capacity to deal with it. Small businesses, it's a different story. They don't have the capacity to enforce these mandates. When you drive employees away, they don't have they don't have the capacity for that. Um, to to pay the what is it fourteen hundred dollars per per violation that they're going to have to pay. Um, so this this again this is this is a, something that affects small businesses. Big businesses are fine. Small businesses are the ones that carry the bag on this. There's just there's never been I, we we've never seen anything like this. This conspiracy by the most powerful in our society to utterly destroy small businesses. That's the other thing you see when you travel around the country, as I, as I have done. Uh, not just in the last couple of weeks, but over the last year and a half. And everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, you got the Walmarts and the Targets and McDonald's, and they're all doing fine. But you find shuttered smaller businesses, boutique-type shops, smaller restaurants... Everywhere, shut down. And it doesn't matter where you are. Smaller towns, bigger cities. And you you talk to the locals. They all have the same story. Oh, that place over there used to be a great, great place. We all used to, you know, and now it's gone. Shut down during COVID, hasn't come back. But all, meanwhile, the government's handing money out to people. Uh, welfare payment, hand over fist. So the money was there to spend. It's just all that money is going to, uh, the consumers have the money and they're spending it. It's just, it's going to Amazon and it's going to Walmart. This is a, a conspiracy to destroy small business. And it has worked. We've never seen anything like it before. Uh, still on the COVID uh, topic. Here's Fauci on a podcast called Skim This. That's the podcast, never heard of it. Uh, advocating for vaccine mandates for kids and for air travelers. I think this is the first time he's been this explicit about it. Here he is.
2: If we get the overwhelming proportion of the population vaccinated, we will get to herd immunity. If we do it in the next six months, it will happen in the next six months. If we do it in the next two months, it'll happen in the next two months. I would support that if you want to get on a plane and travel with other people that you should be vaccinated. When you hear us say, should you mandate vaccination for children to be able to attend school. Some people say, oh my goodness, that would be terrible to do that. But we already do that and have been doing that for decades and decades. I don't know what school you went to, but the school that I went to, you had to be vaccinated for measles, mumps, rubella, polio, or otherwise you couldn't go to school. So it is not something new.
0: I have to say again, kids are already vaccinated against COVID. You know know what their vaccine is called? It's not Pfizer or Moderna. It's called uh, their immune system. Their immune system provides kids better protection than what is provided by the vaccine to adults. So a, a child who is unvaccinated is less likely to get seriously sick than a vaccinated adult. That is how significant this protection is for kids that is given to them by their own biology, by their own immune system, by their bodies. So they're already vaccinated. And that's the difference. We're gonna, we are going to keep hearing the same point over and over again. Well, we, we have these other vaccine requirements. Not all vaccines are the, are the same. First of all, with some of these other vaccines, all of the other vaccines that he just mentioned, they've been around a lot longer. So we know more about them, about the side effects, about the long-term effects. If there are any negative long-term effects to the vaccine for kids, if there are, how could we possibly know that until years down the line from now? There'd just be no way to know that for sure but more to the point, those other diseases that he mentioned are especially hard on kids. And that's why you could make a compelling argument for inoculating kids against them. COVID is not. Thank God it's not. It's something we could breathe, we should be breathing a sigh of relief about. I I have this entire time as a parent, I am extremely thankful. You know what? If, if COVID was as dangerous to kids as the media pretends that it is, if that was true, if it was actually as dangerous as they're saying that it is for kids, then my my own personal calculus would completely change. Because I do believe, as a society, we have a special obligation to protect kids. I mean, I believe that. There's a lot of these people in the media who are pretending to be concerned about kids, they, you know, in, in, when it comes to anything else, they're not. They're not. They don't care about protecting kids. But I think that's true. So, if this kid, if, if if this virus was affecting kids the way that it affects, say, the elderly. Then um, that would probably entirely change my approach to it, but it's not, and that's a great thing. All right, um, a white L.A. Times writer by the name of Jean Guerrero had some thoughts about Larry Elder, which uh, she decided to share on on CNN, and th- th- we, we've we've heard this exact line many times, and they're pretty shameless about it. But here it is. Let's listen.
3: He's essentially been running his campaign on Fox News and on Mm. right wing media outlets. Um, he, he's refused to talk to large, you know, to, to nonpartisan and uh, media outlets and to journalists who are critical of him, uh, has refused to answer difficult questions, often uses uh, the few interviews that he does give as an opportunity to give a performance on, on social media, uh, you know, denouncing those journalists and um, playing the the victim. Um, but he has been able to reach the, the minority of voters in California who embrace his, his white supremacist worldview. Um, and you know, he's he's co opted this line by my fellow columnist uh, from from the headline, you know, calling him the black face of white supremacy, but he refuses to engage with the actual substance of our reporting, you know, the idea that he, his I, his um, views were shaped by a, a well-known white supremacist named Jared Taylor who he repeatedly quoted in early writings um, that he plans to reverse all of the state's progress on immigrant rights and racial justice um, and that he poses a very real threat to communities of color for all of the reasons that we've reported it in the past
0: Just a, just another example of, of how white supremacy has become this doesn't of course doesn't mean anything at all it's this religious, it's this religious idea, um, this sin that you know. It's, it, it actually goes beyond white people. If you have the wrong ideology, then you're automatically a white supremacist. And it's important to remember this too, because um, you have to kind of adjust the equation on the on the uh, the victim hierarchy, the victim pyramid that I've talked about before. We know there's a a hierarchy of victimhood on the left. And, uh, and there's always this jockeying for position that goes on, and the, the group at the top tends to change over time. Uh, it could change even on a monthly basis as there's this struggle to who's going to be the, the uber victim. And as it stands right now, top of the victimhood py- pyramid, the victimhood hierarchy, are uh, trans people. And specifically uh, trans people of color, they're the very, you, you cannot get more victim-y than that. They're the very, very top. Um, and then as you, go, as you go down the ladder, th- there's really no one challenging trans people right now for top victim spot. So they're pretty comfortable. They, they might not be there forever, but they're pretty comfortable at that spot right now. Um, and then as you go down the ladder for the different victim groups, that's where the positions tend to change. It gets pretty interesting. But that said, there is the ideological qualification here, which is really important. So normally, Larry Elder, as a black man, would be uh, pretty high up on the victim hierarchy, like above women. There was a time not long ago, and that's why I say things changed During the Me Too movement, the women had their time in the sun as the Uber victims, and they were at the very top, probably even above trans. Uh, and now they've fallen precipitously. So, you know, normally you would say, and we know that on the victimhood pyramid, the criticism can only go down. Okay? Someone who's lower on the hierarchy as a victim cannot criticize anyone above them. Trans people at the top, they can criticize everybody. Criticism can only go downhill, right? Um, so normally a white woman attacking a black man in this way would not be acceptable. But that's where the ideological qualification comes in. Because he's a conservative, none of this counts. Conservatives are at the very, very, very bottom of the, of the ladder. And once you get down there, races, identity, none of that matters. They're all white supremacists. They're all Nazis. That's all. So that's the way, that's the way this, uh, that equation works. All right. This is from uh, ScottRasmussen.com. It says, 57% of Democratic voters believe supporters of Donald Trump are a serious threat to the nation. A Scott Rasmussen national survey found that 56% of those in President Biden's party also consider the unvaccinated a serious threat. That's a higher level of concern than Democrats express about the Taliban. 44% see it as a serious threat. China or Russia. Uh, So uh, Trump supporters are greater threat than the Taliban and uh, Russia. And I I give that um, as context, which brings us to to this, a, a point that Bill Maher made on his show last night. And, of course, it's upset a lot of people, which Bill Maher, to his credit, is willing to do. He's willing to upset people on the left. And here he is explaining why he often criticizes the left. But he says something about the, uh, the Black National Anthem, which they're now singing before football games. They sang it before opening day on Thursday night. Uh, and he has some thoughts on that, that that some people on the left are upset about. But let's listen.
4: People say to me sometimes, like, boy, you know, you go after the left a lot these days. Why? I'm like, because you're embarrassing me. <laughs> That's why I'm going after the left in a way you never did before, because you're inverting things that I am not going to give up on being liberal. This is what these teachers are talking about, that that you're taking children and making them hyper aware of race in a way they wouldn't otherwise be. I mean, I, I saw last night on the football game, uh, Alicia Keys saying lift every voice and sing, which now I hear is called the Black National Anthem. Now, maybe we should get rid of our national anthem, but I think we should have one national anthem. I think when you go down a road where you're having two different national anthems, colleges sometimes now have, many of them, have different graduation ceremonies for black and white, separate dorms. This is what I mean, segregation. You've inverted the idea. We're
0: going back to that under a different name. Now, the points he raises there are are good points, and I'd like to agree with it that we shouldn't have two national anthems. You know, we should have. I don't agree with this point though that we should get rid of the maybe we could get rid of the national anthem that we the real national anthem, but we should only have one. Um, I think I think our national anthem, the national anthem, is uh, is is good. I'm 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 happy with it. Uh, it's worked for us, and I think it, it could continue to work, but. His point that, uh, well, you know, we should just have one because we're one nation. I wish that was true. But it's really not. I mean, if anything, uh, we should have 50 different national anthems at this point. Because we're so fractured and broken. I mean, there there is not one united country anymore. So the fact that we're now having multiple national anthems—that is a, a reflection of a reality. I don't like it. I wish it was not the reality. I very much wish that it wasn't, but it is. You know, that's that's something that I struggled with on uh, on Saturday as well with the, with the the 9/11 anniversary, and you know, I, I just had to stay offline and not watch any news or anything. Because when I hear people in, in these moments still talking about, hey, you know, this is a, when we think back to that day. This is why we need to uh, come together as a country, just like we did on nine twelve, right after nine eleven, and there was unity. And I, yeah, we all talk about that. I remember it too. I can remember that period of time, which in reality was probably only a few months, but there was definitely a period of time when there felt when it felt like we were united as a country. That's what it seemed like. Most of the fighting and everything had been put to the side. But now when we talk about that, I mean, it just sounds sort of sad and pathetic. It sounds to me like someone, some broken old person reminiscing when they were in their prime in high school and how they were the football, you know, they were the quarterback, and captain of the football team. Those were the good old days. Yeah, maybe they were, but uh, they're long gone now, and they're never coming back. You know, If something like 9-11 were to happen, something really like 9-11, not January 6th, which was not 9-11, but something actually similar to 9-11 or worse were to happen now, we wouldn't have that 9-12 effect. There wouldn't even be six minutes of unity. Not even close to it. We're not uh, one country anymore. And that's why the Scott Rasmussen poll, Democrat voters consider Republicans to be the greatest threat to them. Doesn't surprise me either. Those are the kind of poll numbers you see in a country that has come apart at the seams. That is not one united country anymore. Because as I always talk about, unity you cannot have unity for its own sake. That's why the unity on right after 9-11 didn't last. It was nice. It was emotionally cathartic. And, and it felt sort of emotionally healing. But it didn't last because it wasn't real. It was kind of unity for its own sake. Nice in the moment. But what, what are we actually unifying around? There has to be some kind of unifying principle. Now, in many other countries across the world, um, they have a shared heritage. They have, a sh- they have uh, you know, sh- in many countries, they have a shared religion, shared race, racial identity. You know, that's, that's the case for many countries across the world. That's never really been the case in our country. So what do we unite around? If not any of that then it would have to be unity around shared principles and shared values. Which is a nice idea to have a country united around something like that. These higher ideals. And there was a time when we were, but we're not anymore. Does We all, we all love freedom? No, we don't. We all have a shared uh, passion for human rights? <laughs> no, 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 we don't. We're united around our sense of equality. I don't even know what equality is. We certainly don't have equality of law. Equality anywhere else doesn't exist. So we are many nations. And I thought the same thing going back to when I was, some of these other cities that I, that I was kind of touring and, and looking at in horror and thinking, how can people live like this? I don't recognize this. I don't want any part of this. And I, I can't relate on any level to someone who's like, this is this is their ideal society. So where do we go from there? Uh, I don't know. I think eventually we we go into pieces. Fun thought. Let's get now to our reading the YouTube comments section. And um, we'll start with this. Let's, it's been pretty heavy. Let's get, let's have some good news. I think now we finally have some good news. And, um... I can announce, after a week of, of buildup, I can announce the winner of the Sweet Baby Gang Anthem Contest. And the winner is Walsh's Anthem by Joshua Wathan. I thought all five contestants were phenomenal. And I, I want to thank them all f- deeply and, and sincerely from the bottom of my heart. Uh, because I know the, the, the talent that they put into those songs and those videos and the emotional energy, I could feel that emotional energy as well. Uh, so thank you for that, and all of them were, were wonderful. But I thought, I do think that this song is a deserving winner. And let's all, for the first time now on the Matt Wall show, experience that song together. Here it is.
4: Fly off the handle with rage Who's to blame? It's a sweet baby gang Who's rocking polka dot and flannel shirts without shame Do you know their name? They're the sweet baby gang Now there's no more crying guitar. crying Baby gang. This theocratic fascist dictatorship is on its way, daily cancellations are the law.
0: Well, there it is. And get used to that song because you're gonna hear it every single day now. That is our anthem. I don't know, we, I don't know, the national anthem, we have a bunch of different national anthems now. That is our anthem. And we will all stand with our hands on our hearts and listen to that whenever it plays. And I expect you to do that, by the way, every time I play that song now. I don't want any Kaepernicks. There's not gonna be any Kaepernicks in the, uh, in the SBG gang. If you're on the internet right now, which uh, many, of you, many of you are, then, and you have not taken steps to secure yourself, then you are vulnerable right now just by using the internet. That's why you need LifeLock. Researchers have determined that email phishing attacks and brute force attacks are the two most popular and successful methods cyber criminals use for ransomware and extortion attacks on corporate networks. These attacks are simple to attempt, difficult to detect, and can come with big rewards for cyber criminals. That's what makes it so dangerous. It's important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives every day. We put our information at risk on the internet In an instant, a cyber criminal could harm what's yours, your finances, your credit. It could really mess your life up. Good thing there's LifeLock. LifeLock helps detect a wide range of identity threats like your social security number being for sale on the dark web. And if they detect anything like that, uh, that, that something's been compromised, they will send you an alert and they will work to get it rectified. Nobody can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But you can keep what's yours with LifeLock by Norton. Join now and save up to 25% off your first year by going to lifelock.com slash Walsh. That's lifelock.com slash Walsh for 25% off. Let's now read the uh, the comments. Brandon says, fat phobia? Who's honestly scared of fat people? It's not like it's hard to run from them. Brandon, that, I, that, that that's not acceptable. The, the, that's juvenile. It's not funny. How dare you, Brandon. We don't, we don't partake in those kind of juvenile insults on this show. We don't do that. I'm not going to ban you from the show, though, for it. Uh, maybe that gives you an idea of my real feelings. Veronica says, since we're becoming a dictatorship anyway, can we just have Matt take over and rule with an iron rod? At least his rule would be logical. I totally agree, Veronica. Thank you. Big Boy says, Matt, I was a submariner. We didn't dress formally just to be locked in a metal tube. Um, I'm going to just wear normal clothes on an airplane. Don't be silly. As long as you're presentable and hygienic, who cares? Well, maybe we don't have to go all the way to formal clothing, but it, it's more about the environment. It's, it's like the message that that sends to people. Okay, it's not that I necessarily have any objection to sitting next to someone who's wearing jeans, But the point of the dress code on the airplane is, yeah, number one, to stop people from wearing pajama pants, stop them from wearing sandals, even, even, uh, even shorts. Okay. I don't want you in shorts sitting right next to me on the plane. I've got your, your hairy, sweaty leg is rubbing up against mine. I don't want any part of that. So that's one reason for the dress code, but also it's about sending a message of the kind of environment. It's about kind of classing up the environment. And I think it makes people, when you dress nicer, you behave better psychologically. I don't know if that's actually true, but it's my theory. Um, OJH says, I don't know, Matt, I'm 25 and your planned evening sounds ideal to me too. Maybe it's just an introvert thing, not an aging thing. However, although, although General Tso's chicken is my dish of choice at Chinese places too, I recommend Indian or Thai takeout next time you want to change it up. Once you're on the phone with the Indian place, it's too late to uh, wuss out and order the general again. Yeah, I agree with you. That it is a. That's kind of how I guess you could de- define whether you're an introvert or not. The evening that I had planned for myself, that I mentioned on Friday, had the whole, had the you know had the night to myself. My kids and wife weren't there, and my idea anyway was just to order food and sit in a chair and read a book and that's and go to bed early. That was like my that that to me would have been the ideal night. And if that sounds ideal to you, it's a pretty, that's a pretty good indication of, uh, of introversion, which is not the same thing as shyness. A lot of people don't understand that. Not the same thing as being shy. It's just about where do you, where do you find your energy? You know, what's, what's the most ideal setting to you? All right, Andrew Shelley says, Matt, as the head of the household, you should take a leaf out of the leftist playbook and begin indoctrinating your children into the SBG. Get t-shirts, um, baby grows, et cetera, for them. SBG forever. That would cause problems you cannot imagine in my house. Uh, so as it stands right now, my children have not been indoctrinated into the Sweet Baby Gang cult. I mean, one of the reasons is that it, it would feel very weird to me to show my kids uh, a, you know, like a shirt of of me in a in a diaper so that there's something, I, I think psychologically for them, that wouldn't be the healthiest thing. Um, and maybe when you think about it, if I wouldn't even want to show this shirt to my kids, should we be selling it? Is this whole thing just way too bizarre? I mean, th- that you, you might arrive at that conclusion. I don't know. But I've told you how my wife feels about it. So that would cause a civil war in the house if I, tried to, if I tried to do that. I'm not ready for that yet. I'm not ready to have that battle yet. Maybe one day. And now we get to do our Daily Wire promos. Everyone's favorite part of the day. As the legacy media continues to spread propaganda in extremely precarious times, it's important That you have a source you can trust. That's why The Daily Wire created Morning Wire, the daily morning show dedicated to bringing you all the news you need to know without any spin or hidden agenda. It's the only daily podcast that values your time and the truth. And while we're working overtime to make sure that fact-based news still has a platform, we need your help to keep it trending towards number one. So subscribe and start listening now to Morning Wire on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And leave a five-star review if you like what you hear. What's happening in America today is the antithesis of freedom. This is a new promo. Sorry. Uh, new promo. Our president has decided to go the authoritarian route and mandate vaccines for all businesses with over 100 employees, which includes us here at The Daily Wire. But we're not standing for it. We're fighting the mandate for our employees, for our freedom, and for you. And we're pretty fired up about it. That's why you should tune in to catch an all-new episode of uh, us discussing this issue and so many others on Backstage tomorrow. Backstage tomorrow. It'll be myself, uh, Ben Shapiro, Jeremy Boring, Michael Knowles, and Andrew Claven. It streams tomorrow at 7 o'clock Eastern, 6 p.m. Central on dailywire.com and on our YouTube channel, Daily Wire. You don't want to miss it. Now, one more thing. Now that the uh, new Sweet Baby Gang anthem has been crowned, you can grab the official Sweet Baby Gang shirt that represents the spirit of that anthem, which you just heard. Uh, you you can You can have it. In your heart, that's what the music does. It 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 fills your heart with warmth and gladness, and you can also wear it around to show your pride. As expected, they're selling out fast, so click the link in the description to get yours today. It's it's a masterpiece. This is a limited design, so if you're, you know, a a longtime member of the Sweet Baby Cult, you're going to want to snag one. If you're a new member, you're going to want to, you know, and you want to really show your loyalty because it's very important to us in the Sweet Baby Gang then that's all more reason to go get the shirt. Again, the link to get your shirt is in the description below. Wear your sweet baby gang tea with pride. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. I said last week that it's troubling to see all of these people, most recently Howard Stern, who are now marching under the banner of F your freedom. Some members of the COVID cult are now quite open and shameless about their opposition to freedom. They're explicitly calling for your freedoms to be abridged or destroyed. And uh, they want you to be oppressed in this way for their own sake. And they're very clear about that. Now, I said this is a disturbing development in our culture. Of course, uh, there's nothing new about the fact that many people don't really care about freedom at all. What's new, arguably, is that so many people are willing to admit to it, to come out and say, F your freedom. And I still think that this marks a new and terrifying stage in our societal decay. But I must say that the F your freedom crowd annoys me a little bit less than the people who are still pretending that they support vaccine mandates and masking laws for the sake of freedom. This has been an especially common talking point on cable news. For example, New York Times health reporter Cheryl Stolberg appeared on MSNBC this weekend to argue that, in fact, we are not taking away your rights by forcing a drug into your body. Rather, by not taking the drug, you are depriving her of her rights.
2: I'm sorry to be to to be coarse about this, but there are hundreds of thousands of people who are dead because they did not take the vaccine. What I mean, the science is playing out before our eyes.
3: Right. So a couple of things about what the governor said. First of all, in an infectious disease outbreak, getting vaccinated is not a personal choice. It's not. It's something
0: that we do for the community. And this has been long upheld with legal precedent. Second of all, the governors who are complaining about Biden's mandate failed to note that he, in fact, gave businesses an out. Their employees can opt for mandatory
3: uh, weekly testing. And third, he talked about, well, there's a long history with those other vaccines. Well, how do you think we got that long history? We got that long history
0: because the vaccines were mandated. And she was not the only one um, at the New York Times to strike this chord. David Leonhardt made the exact same argument. Listen to this.
2: I mean, there are two ways to think about freedom, right? One is, does someone have the freedom not to get a vaccine shot? That's a legitimate question. The other is, do we as Americans have the freedom to go out and know that we are less vulnerable to a deadly virus. That is also a form of freedom. And that's why I think that the sort of pro-freedom case for vaccine mandates is actually stronger than the anti-freedom case. Um, Americans deserve the freedom to go to school without fear. They deserve the freedom to go to school without health risks. They deserve the ability to go to football games and go to Broadway plays. And the long history of vaccine mandates shows two things. They make a lot of people mad or at least a small percentage that often translate to a lot of people in a big country and they save lives. And I think that is the likely effect of these vaccine mandates. They are going to push a whole bunch of people who weren't getting vaccinated before to do it because otherwise their lives are going to be really inconvenient um, and they're going to save lives.
0: Okay, let me answer uh, the first question for you, David. Do we as Americans have the freedom to go out and know that we are less vulnerable to a deadly disease? No, we don't have that freedom. We don't have that right, in Cheryl Stolberg's phrase, to not get killed by an infectious disease. That, that right doesn't exist. That is not a right that exists. It can't exist. You don't have the right to be free from infectious diseases for the same reason that you don't have the right to be free from osteoporosis or asteroids or shark attacks. These are all risks that come with being mortal creatures living within a natural reality that we cannot control. If infectious diseases infringe on your rights, What or who is doing the infringing? Granted, a person who intentionally infects you with a disease, intentionally, may be reasonably accused of infringing on your rights, just as you could say that your rights are infringed if somebody physically throws you into a shark tank. But aside from direct and intentional acts of biological terrorism, sickness and disease are an inextricable part of life. To say that you have a right to be free from these risks is to say that you have a right to be free from the basic facts of reality. You may as well jump out of a window on, that, on the basis that you, know, you have the right to be free from gravity. This confusion is probably why, and, and this is going to sound maybe surprising, we should all stop talking about the right to life, or talk about it at least in a, in a qualified and more specific way, even in the pro-life movement. Now, this is going to seem like heresy, but in fact, you don't have any sort of universal inherent right to life. To say that you have an absolute right to life is to say that whenever you die, no matter how you die, it's an infringement on that right. The problem with abortion is not that the baby has a right to never die. Nobody has that right, of course. The problem is that the parents and the abortionist do not have the right to intentionally destroy human life. What's more, the parents have a positive duty, a positive responsibility to care for their child. Abortion is a rejection of that responsibility through an act which no person has the right to perform. That's why I've long said that. I think we, we, when we talk about the, pro, the pro-life case um, against abortion, we could talk about rights, but we should really be talking more about responsibility. Do, do parents have a responsibility to their children or not? They do. And that's a that's a better and more precise and more clarifying way to speak about uh, about the right to life. The right to life shouted as a broad and unqualified mantra with no other specifications to it tends to lead people to the conclusion that even nature itself owes them immortality. But you're owed no such thing. It's not my job to make sure that you don't get sick. Okay, I was not born with that obligation. That, that's, not a, that's, not a, that's not a responsibility that I have to you as a stranger to make sure you never get sick. You're not owed that. The, owed, the world doesn't owe you that. You're not owed safety either or the feeling of safety because that's something that the David Leonhardt said, uh, well, do, do we have the, should we have the freedom to know, and he may as well have said to feel, that when we go out, we're going to be safe from infectious diseases. And that's really what they're talking about. The right, the freedom to feel safe. But that's not something that you're owed either. None of that comes with the package when you enter into this world. It's not on the brochure. And if it was on the brochure, the brochure lied to you. You need to get a new travel agent. The good news, though, is that you can take whatever precautions you want on your own accord, of your own will and volition. To grant you freedom from covid is not my job. It's not the world's job. It's not your neighbor's job. It's not the government's job. But it was supposed to be the vaccine's job. Okay? No, I don't get the vaccine to protect you. Just as you didn't get the vaccine to protect me. You get it for yourself. It's supposed to grant you protection. And if you really believe in the vaccine... And you trust it, and you trust the science behind the vaccine, then you have already granted yourself that protection. Not because you have a right to it, but just because it was available to you, and that's a precaution that you chose to take. And that is your responsibility, not anybody else's. And so for that reason, those two people on CNN, and everybody else talking about their right to be free from COVID or free from infectious disease, they are all today, of course. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vadaski. The show is edited by Sasha Tolmachov. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Nika Geneva. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Today on the Ben Shapiro Show, former President George W. Bush speaks at the 9-11 memorial in Shanksville and compares the January
2: 6th rioters to the 9-11 terrorists. Joe Biden's surrender to Al-Qaeda continues on 9-11. And Democrats turn to internecine warfare over their $3.5 trillion budget buster. We'll get to all of it. That's today on the Ben Shapiro Show.